Welcome into another edition of Ask the Experts. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dave Callender and uh, back with us on the show this time. It's Canada's number one real estate agent, Faisal Suzuwala, is here from Remax Twin City Realty. Hi, Faisal. How are you? Fine, thanks, Dave. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, glad to see you again. And uh, uh, you, you've brought along a friend. I have. I have. We have uh, Abdul Qayyum Ali from BDO. Uh, we call him Qayyum, and he's on the show to give us some tax insights and some advice on, you know, what the intricacies of taxes are when you're buying and selling and all that good stuff that we need to learn. Well, we, we are approaching that season, aren't we? It is tax season. So uh, good good timing to have Qayyum on the show with us today. And we do want to mention that as you uh, as you listen to the show today, if you'd like to get a hold of Faisal and his team, you can go to homeshack.com. That is the website where you can call 519-624-5555. And uh, as usual, we want to start off the show by just uh, doing a bit of a recap. Before we get to that, though, let's recap your book. Let's talk about how well it's doing. I continue to see it on Amazon and your smiling face. So yeah, I see you've got a copy of it there. I but do. Uh, I tell do. us. Tell us about the book. Well, it, it's doing very well. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that the audio version is now on uh, Amazon uh, as well, so under Audible. So you can download an Audible copy of it. And uh, it's doing very well. We, I was pleased to see that it's being received very well throughout uh, the world. In fact, somebody bought one in Japan not that long ago. So that was a very uh, a nice surprise to see that. And uh, Faisal, remind us of the title. What are we searching for on Amazon? So it's called uh, The Real Deal, a Journey of a Billion Dollar Real Estate Broker. So it, it's basically uh, about my journey and some great strategies on being a realtor and also some great strategies on investing in real estate. All right, let's start off the show by just quickly recapping what has been going on in the housing market in KW as we uh, start off this new year. What, what's been happening, Faisal? So last time I was on your show, I predicted that, you know, we're going to see probably a 10% increase in 2021. That was early January we were talking about that. Um, I'm, I guess I'm pleased to say that that 10% increase has actually happened in the month of January. So it's great for sellers, not so great for buyers. Um, prices have just gone uh, just insane as far as what the selling prices are right now. We were accustomed to getting between 50 to $100,000 over asking or you know 10% over asking on average. Now we're seeing 20 to 25% over asking um, homes that are selling in, in, in Waterloo region right now, anywhere from a hundred to as high as $500,000 above the asking price. So the average price of a home has just gone up. I think it was something like $900,000 last month in the region. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> and, and do you see it continuing to grow from here? Well, you know, I, there's got to be a point where there's going to be a ceiling on the on the level of growth in a calendar year. Uh, we have enjoyed some huge gains. And as sellers, of course, that's great news. Um, I think that, you know, there will be some leveling off. I don't see a decline coming. So I'm very confident in the market. Uh, I believe that uh, people who are uh, buying homes right now, they're they're within a price point that is sustainable. But, you know, once it gets another 10%, another 
um, you know, I, I would be a little bit concerned. Is Are those values sustainable? Are the interest rates going to stay low enough to allow for those prices to be affordable for people? Um, so possibly another five to seven percent. But it's just been incredible what we're seeing. It could go another 10 or 15%. Uh, I'm shocked each day that I see a sale go through on the market at what a particular home actually sells for. Well, it's certainly uh, of concern and something to keep in mind for folks who are in the housing market right now. But as we mentioned at the top of the show, we also have to start thinking about the tax implications of, of dealing in real estate. And that's why Kayum is with us today from BDO. I've got a list of topics that we want to cover, and uh, I am far from the real estate or tax genius, so I'm just going to go through them and, and let you guys take it and, and, and expand on them. First uh, on our list of topics today is we want to talk about the HST rebate on rental properties. So I can jump in here. Thank you, David, and thanks, Faisal, uh, for having me on this, this podcast as well. Uh, that particular topic relates specifically to uh, investing and uh, properties that you hold for rent. Uh, there is a, basically you have to pay HST on top of the price uh, when you purchase that home. But that HST is essentially uh, partially refundable so that you can actually apply and get that rebated. Now there is some thresholds in, involved with that and you only get a portion of the federal and provincial taxes back but it is better than having to pay it and absorb that cost. So essentially what happens is uh, between uh, 300, up to $350,000, you will get the full federal rebate as well as the full provincial rebate. But what happens after 350 is that the federal portion starts to get it uh, clawed back or declined. And that fully, the federal portion, which is smaller, it's I believe 1.8%, it works out to, that portion is fully clawed back once you get to a house that's worth $450,000. So that is something that is upon the buyer to, uh, to apply for. Uh, so once you purchase the house, it's part of the agreement. You'll see on the statement of adjustments or the, uh, that you'll have HST is assessed on there. Uh, and then what happens is you would typically go to an accountant. Usually these things are, go, you go to an accountant. Some people try to do it themselves um, and that is possible, but uh, you go and file this rebate. And then after a certain period of time, you get a check back from the government. So you pay it and then get it back. So Kayum, on that, that's if you're an investor not occupying a new home, correct? That's right. There is another one for if you're occupying a new home uh, as, a, as a resident. Uh, that is usually, well, almost always caked into the, the purchase agreement and the builder claims that. Uh, this particular rebate, however, the builder, you cannot assign it to the builder. You have to apply for it yourself. And there are some criteria as well with respect to claiming that rebate. So Obviously, you know, there's the, the ability to play games and a lot of people try to do that. So the CRA has stipulated that in order to claim that rebate, there's several criteria, but the most important one is you have to have the intent uh, at the outset when you purchase the home to rent it out. And the way they basically signify that is you have to show them a one-year lease uh, of your tenant to prove that you're going to rent it out. Now, still people do play games and it is pretty risky because CRA has invested quite a lot of time in and resources and going after these people. Uh, so it's usually best not to play any games with these types of arrangements and just satisfy that one year rental agreement, provide that to them because that's where I see almost all of these get uh, uh, get reviewed in some way, shape or form by CRA. And, and what was the, the thinking behind offering this rebate? 
So I think, I believe that with CRA, they, they have to offer that HST rate on new homes. Uh, it's just a different arrangement with the, when you offer it to a, a rental, uh, basically it's a rental operation, uh, it still has to be refundable. So the builder doesn't claim it through their own process. I'm not certain why uh, they chose to do it this way for the rental versus that way for the homeowner. Um, but in either case, you do have to offer that HST re uh, rebate. All right. Uh, moving on then to our next topic. And it's one we've talked about on the show before. And I know that Faisal is a uh, huge supporter of the idea of financial literacy for youth. We've had lengthy conversations about that. So what do, what do we want to talk about uh, today in that, that uh, topic? So I've actually heard Fessel talk about financial literacy as well. And uh, being he was quite young when he started out, uh, I think he leads by example with that. Uh, financial literacy in youth in particular, it's just getting them exposed to running finances and allowing them to have financial responsibilities, getting a job. And then that can uh, evolve into investing investing in real estate once the capital is there, or if they have a support network to be able to do that kind of thing. Along the way, obviously with all of these different types of initiatives, um, there are tax consequences as well. So the tax consequences is important for uh, young people, everybody to really understand that you make money, you gotta pay tax one way or another. So you can't get away from the government. That's uh, I think the main concept to understand. And it's just a matter of figuring out, well, how is that tax gonna, what implications does that tax have on the income that I'm making? Some sorts of income make uh, attract a higher level of tax than others. For example, um, capital gains actually, if you sell something for more than you bought it for, uh, the capital gains tax is actually the lowest type of tax you can pay. So that's favorable. Whereas dividends, dividend income, and you can do, earn those through investing, uh, that's kind of the next tier where you pay the next level of tax. And then regular income or interest income, if you, so on bonds, uh, that type of thing, that interest income is taxed at the highest rate. So it's important for, for young people to understand those different types of taxes on, on different types of income. So Kayu, speaking of younger people, um, you know, I have kids, I have nephews that I'm concerned about, uh, you know, being able to, uh, purchase their homes and, and start building their financial uh, portfolio and their real estate portfolio. So if I wanted to help my son, my daughter purchase their first home when they're 18 years old, uh, I put it in my name, I put it in their name. What if I put it in their name? Can I do that? And what if they rent out that property because they don't need to live there? Can that be an investment that we can start for our children at an early age? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I believe that if, a, if a children have a support network to be able to do that type of investing, they're ahead of the game. Uh, they just need the discipline to be able to listen to the advice. Uh, essentially what you've talked about is, is a fairly common thing. and it's best to have the ownership, the income of any sort of investment go to the child uh, in question. And there's different ways you can do that. You can put that directly in their name, but sometimes with certain types of investments, you have to worry about uh, something called attribution. So what can happen is if the income is, if let's say you provide uh, your son or daughter $100,000 to invest, and you just give it to them. Um, 
there is a chance that if they invest that, the income that goes into their name could somehow get attributed back to you because they didn't earn that income. They didn't earn that capital. It's your money that you gave to them. So there is a bit of a risk there in terms of it coming and getting attributed back to you. So what sometimes is done is there's joint ownership arrangements that can happen with investments. Uh, particularly when we talk about real estate, there's, there's arrangements where uh, you can have the children have the ownership or the, what's called the beneficial ownership of a property, a real estate prop, uh, investment. And they could, you can help them to get that property, whether it be through helping them qualify or providing them the funds. And then there can be a side agreement where uh, essentially, so in this case, you would, in a beneficial ownership arrangement, you wouldn't necessarily be on title or they wouldn't be on title. Uh, but whoever's on title is the actual owner and the beneficial owner would be a kind of a side arrangement that would be an agreement between the people. Now, can, can, I, can I buy a property for my son or my daughter in trust in my name? So it would be Faisal in trust for my son and um, flip it over to them, say, in 10 years. And would there be a tax implication on me or them at that time? That's a very good question. So I guess the, the short answer to that is there can be potentially. Now, with certain trust arrangements, as long as the, let's say the income from the property is being reported in the child's name, uh, you can usually get around that. But the challenge becomes if it's seen to be your property by CRA, and then you flip it over to your child, there are tax consequences to that. You'd be paying capital gains tax on that. So another way around that would be to uh, put yourself, let's say 1% on title, which is a fairly common thing and have your child report all the income. And essentially they're the owner of the property. They're getting the benefits of it. You're only on title for 1%. So you don't ever have a tax consequence associated with that. Or if you technically would, it would be 1%, which is essentially deemed to be uh, non-existent because the, the idea is you're purchasing it for your child. So that would be a way around that. So on that topic, actually, um, with land transfer tax, there is a rebate for first time home buyers, correct? Yes, that's correct. So if I'm 1% owner, would, does my child still get that 99% land transfer tax credit or no? Uh, that, that's a question for a lawyer, but I believe if, uh, you know, if it's 1%, usually those 1% arrangements are meant for, let's say, qualifying for financing or something like that. Uh, and the property is seen to be the child's. In that case, they would qualify as a first-time home buyer. In the, and that's one of the requirements of that rebate is you have to be a first-time home buyer. Uh, and if that's the case, then they can claim that, that rebate. Now, uh, as an example, if it's a, a spouse uh, relationship and one of the spouses doesn't qualify as a first-time home buyer, the other one can claim a 50% of that rebate. So I, I would confirm with a lawyer, but I believe that in a case where it's a 1% ownership just for the purposes of financing, let's say, I, I think you're okay and you can still claim that rebate. Great, thank you. Uh, you mentioned Kayum a second ago, capital gains. That leads into the next topic on the list, uh, which of course is investing in real estate and capital gains. What do we want to talk about when it comes to that? Well, to uh, Fessel's point earlier about the, the rising market prices and the market values, a lot of my clients hold real estate and some of these values compared to what they purchased at is just phenomenal. 
Um, I, I firmly believe, in my opinion, that real estate investing is, is the best type of investment you can have if you got in at the right time. And it's still, it sounds like it's still a good time to get into, into real estate investing. Russell can attest to that, I'm sure. Uh, but in, in terms of the way that the capital gains works on real estate investing in any investment, really, you purchase the property for X dollars. So let's say you purchase a property for $400,000 and you go down the road 10 years down the road and let's say it's worth $600,000. You've just appreciated the value of $300,000. That's your capital gain. And the way capital gains works is when, in terms of the tax, half of that capital gain is taxed at your marginal tax rate. So uh, in this case, $150,000 would go on your tax return as a, if you were to sell that property with that gain. $150,000 would go on your tax return and you would pay tax on that depending on what other income level you have. So somebody who has already $200,000 of salary income, they're gonna pay tax at almost 50% on $150,000. If somebody has no other income, they're gonna pay 15, 16% uh, on $150,000. So it varies by individual if it's, if it's uh, invested personally. Now, another notable point with capital gains is right now, I mentioned that 50% of a tax uh, capital gain is considered taxable. So there are grumblings in the industry with CRA, uh, not necessarily with CRA, but people that are close to CRA that that capital gains, it's called a capital gains inclusion rate. Right now it's 50%. Uh, there are rumblings that that's gonna go up. So it has been in the past, several years in the past, where it was at one point in time, two thirds. So two thirds of a capital gain would be taxable. Uh, right okay, now, I, I wanna run, run just a, a scenario here. Sure. The gain, let's just say the gain is $100,000. Mm -hmm. um, what is, so what portion of that 100,000 is taxable? 50,000. So 50,000 is taxable at what rate as we speak today? Uh, your personal tax rate. So it depends, it's different for individuals. A hundred thousand dollar gain on an investment property. If I choose to sell it and I make a hundred thousand dollars, what portion of that is taxable and what what rate? So what does that look like? So under the current regime, the uh, current set of rules, half of that hundred thousand dollar gain is taxable. So fifty thousand dollars of that capital gain, you're going to pay tax at your personal tax rate. So, and what that means at your personal tax rate is somebody who has a high income is going to pay more tax on that $50,000 than somebody who has no other income. So it varies by individual. Now, we were talking earlier about uh, a potential, uh, the potential for a change in that inclusion rate. Uh, so the taxable portion of that capital gain, it could be going up to, let's say, two thirds or 75% or whatever you want to call it. Uh, in that case, 75% of that gain would be taxable. So naturally your tax is gonna go up if you sell a, a property. Because the concept is still the same, you're just paying more, more of the gain is taxed by the government. And, and that, that is, I know there's some rumblings about that, but something like that would be what, uh, after the next budget or when would that kind of news come out? So up until last month, we would have thought maybe in the next budget that was gonna be released, but I think the, the gears have shifted a little bit from what we're hearing. So. I don't think that we're at risk of that in the next budget, but you know, anything could happen and the next budget, it could happen at that point. So usually something like that is not retroactive. They go, it's on a go forward basis. So what's happening and there's a planning point there is 
if you've got properties, investments with uh, capital gains accruing on them, maybe if you're already thinking about selling them, this is the, the push you need to, to really pull that trigger and sell some of this, uh, this property. Great, thank you. Up next uh, on our list of topics, let's talk about interest deductibility on investment loads and investment mortgages. Okay, so that's a, that's a good topic. Uh, essentially what that's referring to is anytime you do any sort of investing, Canada Revenue Agency allows you to borrow to do that type of investing. And when you do that, uh, you're obviously going to incur interest, uh, unless you've got some good financing arm that I don't know about. But anyways, uh, if, you, if you're paying interest in order to do any sort of investing, that interest is deductible against that income. So I can right. borrow money against my home or mm -hmm. as a line of credit and write that portion off. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Now you have to be careful to make it very clear if CRA ever comes knocking on your door, uh, you want to be able to show them, look, this portion was used, uh, borrowed or uh, extended from your line in order to do this investment. And you have to keep it separate. Um, anytime you start mingling personal versus investing and that, it, the line becomes kind of blurry. That's where CRA has some uh, room to be able to say it's not deductible. So, so I've always wondered about that. Like if I physically write a check for $50,000 to my, my solicitor for a closing of an investment property, wouldn't that be pretty clear that I borrowed that money specifically for that investment property? Yes, it would be. What I'm saying is let's say you borrowed that $50,000 from your home line of credit and you also use your home line of credit to, you know, finance a, a purchase of a boat. And then all of that, you'll have a pool of money that you've borrowed and you don't know how much of that interest relates to that 50,000 versus how much relates to your boat. So what's, I've seen a lot of banks do is they allow you to compartmentalize your, your debt and they'll say, okay, you take $50,000 off this debt and they'll kind of section it off and say, this is your investment debt. And then they'll do the rest to, you can do whatever you want with the rest. Great. Thank it's you. all about keeping good record. Okay. Uh, we have often talked about the importance of first-time home buyers and how uh, folks still hope to be first-time home buyers, uh, even with how competitive the market has gotten. So let's talk about first-time home buyers and uh, the first-time home buyer credit specifically. Okay. So there are a few um, incentives. Uh, initiatives for first-time home buyers, and, and that's one of them. So the first-time home buyer credit that's offered by the government CRA is, uh, in terms of dollars, it's worth $750. So you get a $5,000 tax credit if you're a first-time home buyer. And to qualify as a first-time home buyer for that purpose, uh, you, you, haven't, you, you must not have purchased a home in the previous four years. Now, if in a spouse situation, one of the spouses, uh, it, it works on spouse uh, scenario as well. So if one of the spouses has purchased a home in the previous four years, then you don't qualify. Now, what about okay. RSPs, RSPs to purchase your first home as a first-time yeah. home buyer? That's another uh, initiative for first-time home buyers. So just recently, the, uh, the amount that you could take out of your RSP without having to pay any tax uh, is uh, it's now up to 35,000. So towards your first purchase of your first home. And again, the same rules apply. It's in the previous uh, four years, you, you haven't purchased a home. Now that $35,000 does have to be repaid over 15 years. 
uh, or and if you don't make if you don't make the monthly repayment or the annual repayments, what ends up happening is that portion for that year, what should have been repaid, goes into your taxable income and your pay tax on. So you're best to tell your employer just to equally divide that up over the next 15 years. Is that right? And just keep putting yeah. it towards. Yeah. Yeah. So if you take out $35,000, divide it up by 15 and just make sure you contribute to your RSP. It's like repaying it to your RSP. You're borrowing from your RSP. So it's your own money. You're just putting it back into your account. Right. Otherwise you're going to pay tax on it. Gotcha. Good. Uh, we and, already talked uh, about the land transfer tax rebate as well. So uh, there is one more concept, but it's not necessarily a tax thing. It's the 5% uh, CMHC. Uh, they allow you to help with the down payment, but I, I, I'm not typically a fan of that program. I don't know if Faisal might have a different opinion on it. but No, no I, I've spoken against it many times. Okay. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, anyone who's listened to our previous shows know that that's uh, not a popular idea with Pfizer. So, um, all right, moving moving on then, uh, let's talk about uh, investing in real estate using a corporation. Uh, I'm glad you brought that one up. So up until now, we've been talking about investing as an individual. Uh, there is another realm of uh, opportunity where you can invest in a corporation. So what that means is you would set up a company and the company would hold the real estate. So there are a few benefits to that. There's some costs associated with it as well, but some of the benefits uh, from a legal perspective, any risk associated with that real estate is contained within your company. For the most part, there are some exceptions, uh, but for the most part, you're containing that risk. So let's say you own a property and you rent it out. Somebody slips and falls and they decide to sue the property owner. Uh, what's going to happen is they're going to sue if it's owned by a corporation. They'll sue the corporation that owns it, and they'll try to sue you personally as well. They probably won't get very far in terms of, and obviously we're talking a little bit about legal here, but they probably won't get very far uh, trying to sue an individual for something that happens with a property owned by a corporation. Um, so that's one benefit is risk management. The other one, uh, it allows you to earn the income inside a corporation, and the corporation pays its own tax. So there's a lot of mechanics involved with that, but you can actually uh, pay that out to you personally and, and kind of control the flow of that income into your hands personally. So this is a very important topic, especially for realtors right now. Uh, we've just been allowed to set up personal real estate corporations, which I know you've been setting up for many of uh, my colleagues. Um, so what you're saying is that the income being earned in the personal real estate corporation could be then transferred to a hold call to purchase real estate at a lower tax rate. Is that right? Uh, yes. So what happens is when you earn money in a corporation, it's a little bit different with investment income because investment income, uh, you pay a higher rate of tax inside of corporation, but you get a portion that's refundable. So if you were to ever pay dividends out to yourself personally, that gets refunded to the company and the rates equalize that way. Uh, but you are allowed to earn income in a corporation move it over to another company and invest through that company as well. When it comes to uh, passive investment inside a corporation, there generally isn't a, uh, what's called a deferral benefit in terms of taxes, because with a corporation, generally the benefit of a corporation is that you're paying lower tax inside the corporation than you would personally. So that benefit isn't there with investments because you're gonna pay the full rate up front, but you get a refund if you pay that money out to you personally. So the main benefit, in my opinion, with investing in a corporation is more so 
keeping it separate from your personal affairs. So you're not going to, you know, have that risk of that property onto you. Let's say if you own a cottage personally, or if you own other, other, other assets personally, you don't want to put those things at risk as well. So at what point then, if you've been a private investor in real estate, at what point would you recommend someone uh, switching things up and actually investing as a corporation then? Um, typically, if you have one property uh, and don't have a significant amount of other income uh, and you're not too concerned about risk, it's, it's okay to invest personally. But generally, if you're talking, you have a lot of other assets you don't want to put at risk, that's when I would start considering uh, investing through a corporation. As you're listening to the show today, get more information by going to homeshack.com or by calling Faisal's office at 519-624-5555. So let's talk a bit about uh, some of the expenses that come up when you are a real estate investor. Let's say uh, your tenant is moving out and you find you're going to have to do a few of those uh home upgrade things, like it's time to change the carpet, maybe upgrade the cabinetry in the kitchen, those sort of expenses, how much of those and what part of those can you claim on your taxes? So good question. Um, I, I like to think of this in, this in the following way. So when you have a property that you're investing, an investment property that you're renting out, uh, you have to consider a business in and of itself. And when I say that, I mean, well, if you're spending money towards this business, it's deductible. It's an expense you can deduct. Either you can deduct it fully uh, or you can deduct it partially. And either you can deduct it all in one year or you can deduct it over time. So that's essentially the concept you have to think about. So to your, in your example, let's say somebody, I'm going to use the case where the property is fully rented. It's not, there's no personal component to it whatsoever. Uh, if somebody moves out, your tenant moves out, and they, uh, you have to do all this type of work. So any sort of repairs, anything that's not going to have what's called an enduring benefit to the property is, uh, is deductible in the year. You can claim it 100% as an expense. Now, if it was something, let's say, you had to put in a new furnace, that furnace is going to last you several years, right? And, and potentially when you buy that furnace, you're going you're gonna to upgrade that furnace to something that was, is better than what you had in there before. In that type of a situation... Uh, you're going to have to do what's called capitalize that expense. Uh, and when you say capitalize that expense, it means that you can't deduct it all in one year. You have to spread that deduction over several years. And you still get to claim it as an expense, but it's over several years that you're going to get that credit. Okay, I might have a question on that. If I had to replace the roof and my furnace, would that not go against my capital gain. So let's say my gain was $100,000, but over over the last five years, I've spent $20,000 on windows, roof, furnace. Would I not reduce my capital gain by $20,000 and wait until I sell that property to get that write-off? Yes. So if it's something that's what we called capital earlier, that capital cost actually adds to what's called your adjusted cost base or your cost base of the property. So if you buy it for hundred grand, sorry, in our case before we were talking, if you buy the property for $300,000 and you spent $100,000 in doing renovations and upgrades, uh, your, your cost has now become $400,000. So when you sell it down the road, you are reducing your capital gain. Now, the preference would be to uh, expense where you can, generally speaking, because you get to claim it against the income. 
uh, and that expense to, that you claim, so let's say uh, repairs and maintenance, just bringing it up to the, the same standard it was before, that type of expense, uh, you don't get to reduce your capital gain. You claim it in the year of your taxes. Okay, good. So I've got another question actually that, that uh, we didn't actually have planned, but I wanted to ask you, if I move into one of my own rental properties, so I, I bought it for 300,000 uh, in 2010, and 2021, I decided I want to move into that rental property. Uh, when do I have to pay tax or do I have to pay tax? How does that all work? So if you start out renting, and this is something that happens quite often, and it's a little bit complicated, but I'll, probably, I'll try to simplify it. So if you rented the property for a couple of years, and you bought it for $200,000 at the outset. I know we're not dealing with realistic numbers, but anyways, uh, yeah. that property appreciates $300,000. Let's say it's worth 300,000 when you move into it to live into it. At that time, it's what's called a change of use. And you do technically have to report that to the government and pay tax on that. Now, the tax that you pay on that, it, it doesn't have to be paid when you move in because you're not selling the property. You don't have any cash to pay the tax you do have to pay that tax when you eventually sell the property. So you can defer that tax liability, but uh, you do have to disclose it to the government. And the same thing happens if you move out. When you move out, then that clock starts ticking again. So let's say you move out and it's worth $500,000. You lived in it from uh, 300 to 500, so that's tax-free. But now from that point on, from 500 on, any appreciation there when you're renting it again, that's also taxable. So highly unlikely, but let's say the value of the property actually went down. Mm -hmm. so, so if the value not? of the property goes down, uh, an investment property goes down, you can actually claim what's called a capital loss. Now, capital losses can only be claimed against capital gains income. So you know, if you sold another property for a gain, you could offset the loss for that gain. But you can claim capital loss. Way back, I had heard that, is, is there any... Any capital gains exemption, like up to a certain limit for the first time, like hundred thousand, first hundred thousand of your lifetime career, uh, lifetime uh, capital gain, you don't pay tax on, or is there any exemption like that? So, when it comes to investments, uh, the answer is no. Uh, there's no exempt amount anymore. Uh, long ago, there was all capital gains. You had a basic exemption, but that's long gone now. Uh, and that's actually an interesting point you brought up. If you're living in a property and you call it your principal residence, uh, a lot of us know that if you ever sell that property, uh, any gain that you make on that property is completely tax-free. So with the prices the way they are right now, some people are experiencing capital gains in the four or $500,000 range. Uh, that's a windfall. You're not going to pay any tax on that at this time. There, again, are some smaller rumblings that maybe that principal residence exemption will be capped at some point. Let's say, you know, you're only going to, you're only going to have $200,000 tax free and everything above that is taxable. So uh, currently it's, it's highly advantageous to have that type of a property and, and sit on that type of a gold mine, but down the road, I don't know, uh, maybe they're going to take that away or, or significantly limit it. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I, that's, that, that answers my question. Because uh, that's always been a concern that 
hey, you know, personal residence, we don't want to have tax on. If I move into a rental property, am I going to end up having to pay the tax right away? But that's great to know. So the, the gains that, uh, that were up to that point are taxable. So I guess you would want to get a letter from a realtor or an appraiser or somebody documenting that. Is that something that would be wise to do at the time that you move back into your property? Absolutely. Anytime there's that change of use, you should make some sort of effort to assess the value of the property. Not necessarily a full appraisal, but some sort of opinion from yourself or, you know, an agent of some sort, just to just to so show you've got that documentation in your files. Um, and another important point I do want to mention is you're talking about a principal residence and some of the benefits that go along with that. I've seen a lot of people try to say invest, have a property as an investment, and then they'll they'll say, okay, well, I'm living in that property, so I'm not going to pay any tax on on any gain. If that's the case, you really should be living in it because CRA is pretty heavy handed with that. They do try to find out situations and they're very thorough when it comes to uh, reviewing that type of a situation where somebody says they're living in a property, but they're really renting it out or they're, uh, or they're not actually living in it. And they'll ask you questions like, well, where, show me your mail. I want to see the address of your mail. I want to see how long moving costs to move in. Did you pay? to have your uh, address changed or mail forwarded, that type of stuff. So they really go in depth if they choose to pursue that. Okay. So I guess the best advice is if you're, if you're gonna rent a property, just say you're renting a property and don't play any games. Right, right. And if you're living in the property partially, so let's say it's an up and down income property where the mm -hmm. basement's rented out, what, how does capital gains get accounted for there? So technically speaking, uh, if you have like in your example, a top, you live in the top and you rent out the bottom or vice versa, uh, you're supposed to prorate the capital gains. So half of it would be taxable and half of it wouldn't be taxable. That's technically speaking. Um, in practice, what happens is as long as you don't claim capital cost allowance or depreciation on the house, um, generally speaking, people just claim it as a principal residence. Now, there is some risk associated with that, though. But they're supposed to claim the income that they receive from that auxiliary apartment, right? Yes, that's right. And therein lies the risk because if they're claiming that income on their tax return, and then when they sell it, they don't claim any capital gain uh, on their tax return. The CRA could say, well, you had this rental income. Well, where's the corresponding capital gain? So, Kevin, one last thing. If anybody wants to get in touch with you regarding some more of these questions, how do they reach you? Uh, so uh, best contact way would be email, uh, phone number. You can contact uh, BDO Cambridge office. Um, I have my LinkedIn profile as well. You can go down there. and, and Yeah, I'm going to put all of that on my website and on this uh, podcast as well. Yeah. Are you providing email as well? Email is probably the best way in, in this day Absolutely. and age, but I'm always open to phone calls as well. Great. Great. Well, I want to thank both of you very much for being on the show. And uh, I do want to ask uh, one final question of, of Kayum. If folks have questions about tax deductions around the fact that they're now using their house as their office, or at least part of their house, can they call you about that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually have posted something on my LinkedIn profile as well in this topic. Uh, Jen, but very, very quickly, uh, because of COVID, uh, there's deductions available that weren't there before you can claim $400 uh, right off the bat just for having home office and working from home. Uh, there's also another method that could get you a little bit more as well, but yes, definitely uh, they can contact me for that type of stuff. 
All right, great. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having us, Dave. Faisal. My pleasure. We want to thank you very much to my guests. Uh, Faisal Suziwala, of course, is with Remax Twin City Realty. His book, The Real Deal, still available on Amazon, is an audio book as well. And you can get more information at homeshack.com or by calling 519-624-5555. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for more of Ask the Experts here on 570 News.